Audi. Despite this, of all the records I've listened to for these Rebel Yell programmes, none has been more direct and more moving than this song by Rebecca Johnson, included on an LP called We Have a Dream, compiled by One World Peace Songs. We'll face them with refusals, we'll face them with song, we'll blockade their bases, it's silent and strong. We don't want their missiles and we don't want their wars, so we'll stay here at Greenham, we'll stay here at Greenham, we won't move from Greenham till peace it is ours. As many of you will know, that was the late great broadcaster John Peel on the BBC. And he was introducing a song by our guest for this episode, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Rebecca is a peace activist and campaigner who's dedicated her life so far to fight for peace and nuclear disarmament. The song was recorded at the time Rebecca was at Greenham Common, the women's peace camp set up to protest against the British government's storing of nuclear missiles in the area. Indeed, she lived at the camp for five years, organising many campaigns and being arrested and imprisoned many times. Rebecca will be at pains to insist her Nobel Peace Prize was for all of her team at ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. But nevertheless, it's Rebecca's ideas, treaties, and I am sure her winning way with words that has been at the forefront of such campaigning for many years. It's not every day you meet a Nobel Peace Prize winner in the sea, but I did. And as soon as I heard who Rebecca was, I knew I had to try to convince her to speak to me. Rebecca, as you will soon discover, is a wonderful story storyteller and I am sure her life, her work and indeed her travels will captivate you. Dr Rebecca Johnson grew up in a Hutterite community in the rural US. After living in Japan and visiting Hiroshima, she was moved to join the women's peace camp at Greenham Common, protesting against nuclear weapons. She's driven supplies into war-torn Bosnia, sailed the seas on Greenpeace's Rainbow Warrior, worked with the UN in Geneva and spent time with the Fidel family in Cuba. In 2017, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize alongside her team. Rebecca is also never far from the sea and a song and is here with us now. I did think that we were going to be starting with your activism when it comes to travels, because I know you've travelled far and wide in your work. But looking deeper, I noticed that you grew up in the States until the age of seven in a Hutterite community. Have I said that right? Yes, you have. In North Dakota. In North Dakota. So tell me about that. As far as I know, the Hutterites are similar to the Amish, are they? Very similar, but they do use um, machines and and, um, electricity. Certainly the Hutterites were both Anabaptist Christians and kind of quite dissenters on a number of issues, like they're pacifist, they believed that you hold everything in common. So my parents joined just before the the war, actually. They had become involved with some uh, youngish Bruderhofers who were wanting to, well, who, who did set up a community in Germany and would, were then caught up in trying to get children out, mostly Jewish children, but not entirely, but children out during the 30s after Hitler took power. And of course, the inevitable happened, which was that they then, their little community got raided and some of them got killed. And But my parents were in Birmingham 
and uh, they kind of were falling in love with each other and in the work that they were both doing, which was to um, to find placements for the kids and support for the Hutterian uh, Bruderhof community, as it was called, they then end, ended up basically joining the community and getting married not long after. Uh, so that was in January 1939. And then they had eight kids, and I'm the eighth. <laughs> I love the way you said then they had eight kids. That took quite a while. It's quite a lot of doing. And I can just imagine, you know, you and I sitting here in my place in Hove and locked in the other the other room next door and my two children. I can only just imagine. And then they had eight kids. It's like yeah. there was a lot more involved in that. Well, yes. But at least for my mother there was, I can tell you. My father did a fair bit of, 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 of kind of, you know, connecting up. And because they'd set up a school for the boys that they couldn't place in families in the UK, and also then for some of the uh, families that fled after uh, the SS raided the the Sanitz community in, in, in Germany. They were then regarded both, they weren't only pacifists, but they were also know doing a school for young German boys the fact that they were mostly Jewish boys didn't seem to matter to the authorities and then somebody like my father who didn't work on the land uh, he was actually a qualified solicitor at that time was expected to go fight and he got his call out and he said no and unlike the Quakers they were not were not really accepted initially as having a faith-based you know, fundamental opposition to killing and all, and all of that. And in, and in fact, my, my father had joined one of these officer corps things in the, when he was at school in the, in, the, in the 20s. So he was imprisoned for a short while, but managed to argue successfully not only that he should not be imprisoned, but that he and some of the other families should be able to take all of the young German national boys, again, I, I have to stress that they, these were kids that had been brought out of Germany because they were going to be persecuted and or, or killed or they'd been denied education and so on. So they ended up going of all places to Paraguay. Uh, so four of my brothers and sisters got born in Paraguay and then they came back and by this time there was a very thriving community built very much in Shropshire, very much um, around farming and my mum's twin sister had by this time also joined, fallen in love with, married a young farmer who had also joined, um, brought together by the kind of Christian socialist pacifist idea of living in community and sharing everything in common. But then they began to reach out, or I'm not sure which way around the reach out went, but my father went to look for places in the United States to reconnect with the Hutterite, the Echt Hutterite communities, you know, the, the 300 year old communities. And so he was actually in the States when I was born. So he didn't meet me until I was three months old. <laughs> and, and then he basically packed up the family and in less than a year, we were all kind of bundled on a boat and sailed for the States and went to North Dakota, a place called Forest River, where there was already a long time uh, Hutterite community. And that's where my first three, four years 
was spent there. So, but I don't have a huge amount of memory of that. Uh, although I've seen photographs, and I've got photographs of me bundled up in life jackets on the on the boat uh, going over. But my earliest really clear memory is actually when the family moved again. Uh, this time was moving to Pennsylvania. A part of our family moved in a hearse. A lot of the kids were put onto, you know, the Greyhound buses, often under the care of just a fourteen or fifteen year old girl. But our family was a bit different because my one of my sisters, Elizabeth, had polio. And at the time that they decided to move, she was in a nectonies cast. So they bought a hearse. They, they kind of didn't do it up very much, but basically in the back of the hearse was my sister who was stretched out. She couldn't bend in the middle, so she was just sort of stretched out. My mother me and fortunately my best friend Karen oh I don't know if she was my best friend then but she was one of the other community kids uh, that I was was close to and in the front there was her father there was my eldest brother Tim and there was another man I have no idea who who was sharing the driving of course my father had gone on ahead and all my brothers and sisters basically just sort of went in a couple different groups with other kids. So, so there are very funny stories about the kids who were on the Greyhound with my sister Susan, who was probably only about 14 herself, kind of in charge of them, on the back rows of the Greyhound, leaving behind another of my sisters by accident and having to tell the Greyhound it had to go back and this sort of thing. So this journey took several days because it, it was done in stages and so we all would meet up at these other either Hutterite or possibly Mennonite communities. And again, I have quite vivid memories of all of that. Trying to think of what I know of the US at the time. So we're talking, you were born in 53, 54? 54. 54. 54. 54. So we're talking very late 50s at this point. Yes, we are. We're, we're still in the 50s. And I yeah. I'm trying to think of what I know about the states in that time. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, the, the, the great open road, the beat generation. Yeah. There was a lot of traveling and I can just visualize. And everybody traveled in by. the hearse. <laughs> yes. We'd pull up at places like Howard Johnson's or places like that where some of the other kids might be staying if we didn't find a, a community there. But I remember Elizabeth finding it hugely funny because we'd go in and we'd get food. I mean, I had a Dairy Queen ice cream <laughs> for the first time. I mean, how amazing was that? <laughs> to, a a, to a little hood like kid. What were you wearing? Did people, were you a curiosity? We looked a bit like the Amish would look in quite old-fashioned sort of German peasant clothing. The boys less so because they could wear jeans and check shirt and that sort of thing. But the, the girls and, you know, to go out of the Hof and quite often in the hof it depends how strict but to go out of the hof you'd wear a little bonnet or or a spotted handkerchief covering your hair well you wear you look different so we did kids. look different and other kids did know this but elizabeth has this memory of of we'd gone in to get some food and probably use the toilet and things like that and she heard some children whispering about the hearse and dead people are in that so she moved the only parts of her she could move was well her arms she moved her arms up and she just heard this screaming of, oh, the dead person moves <laughs> you know, that's 
terrible, isn't it? Oh my God, this needs to be a film. I'm visual. I mean, that's the lovely thing about yeah. radio and, and audio is that I'm, I have this visual now of you all piled into this hearse, your poor polio-ridden sister who can't move, the kids playing outside, yeah. you know, the, the warm yeah. air of the... I don't know if it was warm, but I'm just, I can imagine it. I can almost smell it. it but but in my memory, it was an adventure. An absolute and adventure. It's really, that journey is such a striking memory, whereas I'm aware that I must... I have, mem- I have memories of snow and memories of slipping around on the ice, you know, as a kid. And, you know, there are one or two photographs that remind me. So I'm not sure, you know, how real those memories are, but I know that the memories of that journey with Elizabeth and my mum and Karen in the hearse, that's real. That's my memory, all those little, little stories. And then we got to Pennsylvania, and then again, they were setting up a kind of new hope there, and, you know, we, we all lived within that. I mean, I think the older kids did go to school in Uniontown and the Hof was on this thing called the Route 40. It was an old hotel, actually, they took and then they built up other areas of it and had it la- a lake, which for me was the most exciting thing because I got completely into swimming. But I, again, have these episodic sort of memories from that time. And then everything kind of went wrong. There was a power struggle in the community. Was it quite a strict community? It was a very, very strict community. And it seemed to have become stricter on some of the Puritanism side and lose some of its communal joy. I mean, you know, we had singing. Everything we did was singing. People would arrive, people would leave, and we'd gather and sing to them. We'd have singing for all the seasons, you know, the harvest season, the planting season, lots of German songs. Also, they took over, you know, they put music to to uh, Hiawatha, songs connected with that, and took over your canoeing songs and this sort of thing from First Nation American Indian people. Singing accompanied all the work you did, so if, if you had to be doing something that wasn't very pleasant, somebody would strike up a song and then we'd all harmonise and we'd harmonise very naturally. It was, I mean, it was a closed community and it, like the Amish are in the sense that if you lived in the community, you hardly ever saw anyone from the outside world. Obviously, the older kids did because they went to school. It was about 15 that kids could go to school. But I can only really, really remember one trip out very vividly and it was when our cat got lost and then somebody had obviously phoned and said said that they found the cat and so my dad just loaded up one of the flatbed trucks with kids and me and at least one of my sisters and some of the other Prudovkind and went to this house and there was this woman with I now know bright red lipstick on who handed us our, our cat but I started to say something's wrong with her mouth she's bleeding and my father was trying to show me so the discord in the community led to you leaving so yes so it was it was a leadership struggle essentially but my parents had been sent out for a while first while us kids or at least some of us kids stayed in i think it was my eldest brother got kicked out first he was by that time in college and studying to be a doctor but we ended up in cleveland ohio and then i saw the real america and we were in quite a poor area of cleveland ohio and we just had a couple of rooms on the top half of a little house and there was a young couple with a baby in the lower half but 
This was so exciting. I went to school. I did duck and cover exercises under the desk, which, of course, I had no understanding about nuclear weapons at all. To me, they were dangers akin to things like all the traffic, where to walk to school, we'd have to kind of walk together. And then there would be kids from the school, which included and sometimes one of my elder sisters, who actually shepherded us across the roads on a crossing. All of this was so exciting. You know, July 4th, with all the fireworks, I went into Lake Erie swimming, which I loved, but I came out covered in oil. It was so shocking. We didn't know about things like that. So that was a whole learning experience, but I really, I loved it. But then came my father deciding that he had to take at least some of the, the youngest part of the kids because he, he and my mother both worked all hours. You know, my mother cleaned floors in a hospital and she was a qualified teacher and had been teaching always in, in Pudov. They needed to go back, for them, back to England and also his parents were quite elderly, living in Eastbourne. So <clears throat> that's what we did and I just got informed. We went to New York, which again was... <sighs> We had two rooms and my father with the two boys and then my mother with the six girls. But not everybody was going to go. We all were in New York together and then we said goodbye to both my brothers and one of my sisters. Another of my sisters had gone ahead. So it was just the four youngest of us, my mum and my dad, that actually got on the Queen Elizabeth in steerage. Again, new horizons opened up for me like movies. I saw Hayley Mills in one of her first movies movies, the one Parent Trap, on a ship, on this amazing ship. I made friends with particularly an Indian girl called Maria. We ran everywhere on that ship. People just got used to us, kind of, and were very kindly to us. And then we arrived in the pouring rain after dark, or maybe it was just so grey I thought it was after dark. All of this was very strange and very scary, and we went and my dad had to look for work, found work in Brighton, found a funny little house on Shoreham Beach. And if you lifted the, well, quite often the wind was lifting the, the floorboards, but it was just shingle underneath with dried seaweed. I mean, it was part of what had been beach. And then I lived in Shoreham until I was 18. No, I didn't realise it was a local comp. originally, oh, yes. yes. Coming back to Hove is like coming back, well, after more than 50 years, and it is really coming home to my sea you know this is where I I just would swim everything that ever you know I got a bit persecuted by kids you know well I guess you must have been quite unusual coming from the states and and we were dressed in hand-me-down clothes and I mean my mother was dressed in that (laughs) and we spoke with a very odd accent and we had kids throwing stones well certainly at me I was chased I had kids boys I mean not the girls but the, the boys would kind of jump on me. They, they were shouting, Nazis go home, because my accent was quite Germanic. But it was also American. They were shouting, Yankees go home. Because I, would, I probably told them, but I'm an American. You know? <laughs> I'm not a Nazi, I'm an American. So then it was Yankees go home. I can see where all these threads of, your, of who you later became mm. were actually building your, your personality, you know, the, the pacifist parents, the, mm. the, the good community doing good, the, then the sort of sense of 
injustice actually almost you know when yeah. you are that school child being persecuted for nothing you have have done I can yeah. I can see it starting to build yeah and strangely one of the only kind of political campaigns that I can remember for my times in Pennsylvania that we were involved in in was that because they believe fundamentally in thou shalt not kill they took up the cases of people on death row and we as kids would be asked to write letters and give them the name of somebody on death row it was nearly always men did they write back if they did they wrote back to the Bruderhof my feeling is that the Bruderhof probably put I must ask my sisters if this is true put a bundle together and then would send them with the children's, you know, we would draw pictures for them. And I mean, that we probably did more of the picture drawing. And But but I was certainly writing these things too. Uh, so I think they probably wrote back to the Bruderhof if they did write back. Uh, and I know that some of the brothers would go and visit. And my father, although he couldn't practice law in the US, he did a lot of the anything that legally that was required. You know, whenever they needed a lawyer, he was able to be doing that side of things because he had that training. So he got a job as a, as a solicitor in Brighton. Jumping forward a little bit, you came, you came here and you settled and before your five years at, at Greenham, obviously there's still a little bit of time mm. together, but before, you said to me when we chatted before this, you said that you actually, you weren't there at the start of Greenham, Greenham Common because you were in Japan. Well, yes, I went to university initially to study physics, ended up partly on the nuclear issue. I had wanted to solve the problem of nuclear waste. So I did math, physics, chemistry, A-levels, and I did those in Brighton. And then I went to university in 10. Well, I went to, actually, I, I did go to Alaska in between because I was a bit too young. I'd had to be jumped up a, a, a year or so. I got on, um, it was like a, a, an exchange sort of thing. And they sent me to Alaska. I was the first exchange student there. I think it was to stop me connecting up with my brothers because they needed, they, they needed somebody who was a bit independent, I think. So I went to a school there, but I also looked after six children younger than me. It was, they, I went to a family that had six children uh, and the eldest brother was the same age as me, but all the others were younger. And the mum broke her leg skiing about a week before I arrived. So that was Alaska. But six I, kids that was much. my politicisation on feminism. And we had a wonderful literature teacher that got us to read some early stuff, like Sylvia Plath and that, in Alaska. But I, also environmentalism. I got involved with a group that was really opposing the Alaska pipeline going through and all of that struggle. I became very much aware of American politics at the time of the corruption with Nixon. I was going to say, so what yeah, period was that? Yeah, we're talking about 1973. Yes, that was the year yeah. that I was there. And I came back from that, went to university got very involved with the women's what was then called the women's liberation group at the university learned much more about there were Chilean refugees and I'd always sung but I'd actually learned to put that to the guitar I did street theater in Bristol singing songs that I made up about different things but about homelessness about Chilean refugees um, I loved the songs of Victor Hara from Chile, who was murdered by the junta. I wrote a lot of feminist songs, so that it was very much about that. It wasn't really about peace and nuclear disarmament. 
And then I moved to London and worked for a while in Regent's Park and then earned enough money to go travelling, did some travelling, some of Africa, some of Asia, and ended up in Japan, where, again, I had a sister (laughs) with two small children. So that was my real motivation for going to Japan, but I, I just fell in love with it. I thought I was just going to go there for six months and teach English and earn the money to go on. And I had in my mind the dream of actually a road trip all the way from Alaska right down through the whole Americas. You know, I was going to do it on motorbike right down to Tierra del Fuego. I was this was my dream. But I ended up spending two years in Japan learning Japanese getting again involved in a women's group, feminist group that was both learning from different texts, but beginning to develop their own kind of politics and texts. And they were working on two kinds of things. One was to open up a rape crisis center in Japan. And we, so we talked about that a lot because rape is, you know, the Japanese like, uh, oh, at that time, very much like to believe that you know, nobody got raped, not really. But it, it just was under the covers in a different kind of way. And then the other thing was that it was very hard for lesbians in Japan to be able to to be out and open. And there was a real struggle around that. So most but not all of my friends were also um, lesbian feminists. But there was this wonderful historian who was in her 60s, Ide Humiko, who was like one of the iconic early feminists who had written the, the first sort of history biography of one of the earliest ever the Buru stocking women of Hiratsuko Raicho. So I learned so much and I decided I was going to go back to UK, do a master's degree, get a PhD on women's political participation in Japan and that was going to be my career. So leaving Japan, I decided to take the Trans-Siberian because I just, I always had wanted to do that. Yeah. And I've never liked flying that much. So, But I did fly first to Hong Kong where I had a friend. Then I went to Beijing and I did part of that by train. It was 1981. It was September 1981. I left Beijing during the full moon festival in September. There was literally a full moon hanging in the window of the Trans-Siberian train as we pulled out and off we went towards Moscow now I was not allowed to make any stops between Beijing and Moscow except just to get out on the platform like to change the the gauge and I got to Moscow and I did take a few days there then took another train to Warsaw and again 1981 was a really interesting time there because you had Solidarność but it was an extraordinary thing really having come through Warsaw at just a key moment in Poland's history. It must have been a very, very different place then. What was the sort of standout moment when you were crossing those countries at that time in 1981? The standout moment for me going to Warsaw was that I'd met a person who wanted me to take some cans of meat to... He helped me out with something because I didn't speak any Russian or anything... And um, he asked me to take these cans of meat to a friend of his in Warsaw and gave me the number and everything. And we met on that major kind of Warsaw square. And we had, from a stall, we had 
what would have been a meat dish from a little store, but it was all mushrooms. It was absolutely delicious. I have to say, I love mushrooms anyway. But meeting the, this, this young woman and her mother and just handing over these cans that I had transported on the train from Moscow to, to Warsaw for them and them saying it's the first meat that they're eating for a really long time and the po- level of poverty, that was a shock. But it also, also was all part of my consciousness raising about politics. After Warsaw, I, I went through East Germany saw the wall and then took a train to Harwich, uh, what Hook of Holland, a little boat to Harwich. And my mum met me. Mm-hmm. My father had, had, had died some years before and I'd actually come back from Africa on hearing that. But my mum came and met me at Liverpool Street Station. It was raining again. <laughs> it was very <laughs> grey. And it was soon after that, while I was at SOAS, at, at, at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, doing my master's degree in Japanese language and politics of of the Far East. So it was including Chinese, Korean, Japanese, but also US-Russia rivalry. And I actually ended up writing my master's thesis on US-Russian rivalry over the reconstruction of Japan, 1945 to 1951, which allowed me to really go into the reasons for dropping those two nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But by the time, I'm jumping ahead a bit, because by the time that I was actually writing that, I had started living at Greenham. I moved to Greenham on August the 9th, 1982, after I'd done my exams, when I was still hoping that I would be accepted for the PhD, and I was accepted, but I ended up choosing Greenham over that. So from August 9th, 1982 until five years later when the INF treaty, that treaty between the US and Soviet Union as it still was then. So for people who don't know, uh, tell us about Green and Common, the women's peace camp Mm. there. They did set up 40 years ago after a march from Cardiff to Greenham to draw attention to the fact that a new generation of nuclear weapons called cruise missiles that were supposed to be able to be launched as a first use weapon, not just a deterrent weapon of first use, and to fly below the level of radar and hit with great precision all these targets in Eastern Europe and Russia. And I visited a couple times during the next year, but it was only really on August the 9th that I went there with my motorbike, but with my little typewriter, as well as the tent. I thought I was only going to stay there a week, but I stayed there five years until we got the treaty that did eliminate not just the cruise missiles it banned the whole class of what were known as intermediate range nuclear weapons so the ss-20s on the on the soviet side plus the pershing missiles which had gone into germany and the cruise missiles which had gone not only into the uk from 1983 onwards but into netherlands italy germany 
anyway, I am forgetting one. But Greenham Common was the first designated base to get this new generation of cruise missiles. So that's why the women started the walk. And they got to Greenham and all they were asking for was a half hour televised debate with somebody from the government about the decision, the NATO decision, or somebody from NATO even, you know. But just a public debate was all they were asking for. And who and they were, were they? Who were these women? Were they but just they ordinary were, they women? They were ordinary like women. They, you know, they had to get, a lot of them, well, you know, they, they had children. They had school-aged children. But when they got to Greenham, they were being ignored. So they, some of them, chained themselves to the main gate of Greenham, like they remembered the suffragettes had done. And... And then locals came up and said, well, it's going to rain, so you need a tent, and here's a tent, and here's some... You know, they had their sleeping bags and things. But they were just ordinary women who'd intended just to draw attention to this. They were almost entirely Welsh women originally, but they were joined step by step. They stopped at all these towns, you know, Bristol and, and you know, Hungerford and Newbury, all these different different places along the route and they picked up some some additional women that came with them to Greenham then a peace camp got started I mean and and that's that's really they started the peace camp movement and some of the women who were the original marchers you know basically they had to go home because their kids had to be put into school others just basically told their husbands you're going to need to get the kids off to school <laughs> you know others didn't have those but had jobs that they decided to put on hold whatever but a small group of really not very many women and about three men at that time Greenham went women only in February of the following year and I have to say that that's when I found myself really responding to the appeals that they needed to have women come down and support them because otherwise they'd just be destroyed and, and evicted and that's really why I did go down but I never imagined I'd live there for any length of time but my first action happened on the anniversary of the walk leaving Greenham a whole group of us again mostly Welsh women who'd come up and said we think this anniversary should be recognised and we want to go into the base just to remind everyone this base is being readied for nuclear weapons of mass destruction and meanwhile what was in the news was camping was the, the, the arguments that we were illegally there and that they were threatening us and had been threatening us they would send in bailiffs and get rid of we had a few caravans we had some kids on the camp at that time so we had like a creche caravan that was very safe for all the, for the kids to play with because we were sandwiched between the main gate of the base and the A339 road so anyway got arrested on that action singing of course and then the trial took place and had people like I think it was the Bishop of Salisbury, or certainly it was a bishop, and Mary Calder, and, you know, we had, I think Tony Benn was one of the uh, witnesses to talk about the, the nuclear weapons. And then we were told we were guilty, asked to say why we shouldn't be bound over and therefore leave Greenham for a whole year. And so one by one we said... We are keeping the peace. That's right. They used a 600-year-old law called Justices of the Peace Act that was for about news about men getting drunk in their villages from, you know, 600 years ago. They used that 
as the law, and so what it, it's, it's on the, under the civil law. So you're supposed to agree to be bound over, and then they say, don't do this again for a year, and then they, they let you out. One by one, all of us, including Chris, who was five months pregnant at the time of the trial, said, no, we, we are keeping the peace in the only way we know. You know, we're still asking for public debate about this. We're asking for people to actually recognize that nuclear weapons are going to destroy people just like us in Eastern Europe and, you know, Russia. And already there were movements like the, the Greens in Germany and the churches. And I, who had come through on the Trans-Siberian, gave evidence about Hiroshima, having been to Hiroshima, having been to the museum, having been really profoundly shocked, moved, having had nightmares after coming back to London when I realised that nuclear war could actually happen all over again. Nightmares in which, the you know, I was looking out of the window and I could see the dome of St Paul's looking exactly like the atom bomb dome in Hiroshima. I spoke of this, of the children, of these, uh, a lunchbox that was absolutely metal fused the metal and the rice together but this lunchbox was on a child the the singed singed you know uniforms that were all that was left, the shadows that were left of of human beings by the flash of this horrendous bomb i spoke of that but i also spoke about the wonderful people i'd met all the people on all the stops of the trans-siberian all these women who'd, who'd hold up the best food that was like i can tell you the train food wasn't that great but, yeah, you know spatchcock chicken and lots of vegetables and you know fruit and i'd buy them from them and they'd wish me luck and they'd i couldn't understand russian but you know all of this and the people and i do did speak german and i I did talk to a few Germans, um, East Germans, who were on the train. I spoke in that trial about all of that, and then we were found guilty of being a nuisance. Seems it must have been so frustrating. I mean, I think it's easy to forget the amount of fear there was, and justifiably so, in that early 80s period, you know, with the Cold War and the threat of, uh, of nuclear bombs. And But it, it must have felt like, as it often is with movements like this, that it's the young people, it's the creatives, it's the writers, it's the artists, artists it's the, the the youth that were actually getting behind this and actually wanting to bring it some attention and then you've got the establishment shouting you down again. yes absolutely i mean cnd got a massive influx of younger generation it still had a lot of the old people older people mostly men but a few women who had been doing the older mass marches in the 50s and early 60s and all of that but really it was an influx of young people and i have to say live actually living at greenham common i who, who was by that time in my what well, i was about 27 when i went to greenham uh, I was one of the older women. There was a lot of young women who were deciding to come down to Greenham. They just wanted to be there to help, to do something. You know, when we did, we got evicted about three weeks after we'd entered the, the base and gone into the sentry box. Uh, and we occupied it singing. I mean, we even handed the policeman his, his sandwiches and his spectacles out of the window while we were in occupation. And in the end, we did open the windows because it was necessary. And that's when we got arrested. So we got ev evicted. All the caravans went. 
by the end of September and then began biblical 40 days of basically non-stop rain. We ended up living in just a quagmire of mud. After the caravans went, they dumped a load of rocks so we couldn't get purchase for our tents so we we're living in basically bivy bags uh somebody for a while donated a van and that was able to be for the kids and the and their mum and but we were just wet all the time and the base was really pushing ahead with its construction work so my second arrest was trying to stop the laying of pipes that were to put for the extra burden of whatever the pipes were were needed for us pipes or, or something for the base and again it was breach of the peace and there was a picture of me being hauled off between two police again very non-violently but I mean covered in mud and that ended the picture ended up in the Guardian and actually on my third arrest which was after dancing with 44 women as one of 44 women on the silos on New Year's Day of 1983 but this was after we had 35,000 women come down to Greenham in response to a photocopied appeal by letter. I mean, this was in the days before you had any kind of social media. And we only had the money to photocopy a hundred of them. So we sent the hundred to as many women as we knew saying, please photocopy as many of these as you can, but at least 10 and send them to women that you know. And it just, it ended up being one of these circular letters. And 35,000 women came on December the 12th of 1982. And 6,000 stayed for the next day to actually blockade the entire base on a working Monday day not one bus or truck or anything got in there i think in fact only the people who were inside the base already for 24 hours we completely blockaded that base we had less than a year to stop these missiles i see this spirit in the young climate activists mm -hmm. i really see this they recognize that if they don't do something it's their future that is being destroyed by climate destruction, this military industrial, you know, waste ground that, that, that is being created of the earth. For us, it was this military industrial nuclear war being planned and armed and very, very likely to happen with the leaders that we had. So we had loads of women suddenly staying and we started to set up some, uh, uh, to extend a campsite because women, this is something I learned from the Hutterites, you know, that when you all live together, there's a finite number that can do that amicably and safely. And for the Hutterites, it was essentially about 200 people. It was a certain number of families and the families were big like ours. And for Greenham, it really was, you couldn't have more than about 100 women actually living at any one gate. You could have others visiting during the day and things like that, but really for living. And actually the optimum number was more like about, you know, 20 to 30 because we were cooking over open fires. I mean, I remember cooking all these vegan foodie, vegan pancakes for, you know, 24. And then six other women would come back from the pub or come from another gate, having heard that there was pancakes <laughs> and turn up and said, can we have the pancakes too? You know, I was going to ask you about living conditions. But I've, got, I've got so many questions, but interesting i mean this is jumping forward because i know you're in, involved in extinction extinction rebellion but what you said there it just made me so frustrated about you know your women having peaceful singing protests living in a camp doing some 
good stuff and not harming anyone, no violence. And you've got these always older white males feeling really threatened mm. by your very existence yes. and your peaceful process. And ex- ex- I was just thinking exactly of uh, Greta Thunberg and what and she did and the abuse that she's had on so exactly the, others the like big grown men that yeah. react to this because they're girl. frightened a big grown man more than a young woman with passion to change the world absolutely it's just it's just so frustrating why they feel that fear i'm thinking of other revolutions that have been peaceful like the the singing revolution you know in estonia Exactly the same sort of people, thing. Mm. People sitting around, standing around and singing really loudly. Manage eventually to expel the Russians. You know, what is the... Is, is it because men were involved in that? Is that okay? You know, just it's very, very frustrating. Yes, that's another thing. And that's about how patriarchy views history and who are the players in history. That, you know, it took quite a long time for the suffragettes really to have been recognised as, you know, ha- having particularly the suffragettes who used direct action as having played a major role in you know in getting the vote before that it was seen as the suffragists with their husbands mm-hmm. very much in support and all of those sorts of you know having all of those social meetings socialist meetings early labor all of that which all were part of it too but Greenham was a really iconic Although a lot of other peace camps got set up, most of those were mixed. One of them is still going at Faz Lane, but we were being evicted by the middle of Greenham after the cruise missiles arrived, which they did arrive. They were flown in over our heads in November of 1983 and some women did leave there completely disheartened but a lot of other others myself included said we have to stay because we can turn this round by this time i'd actually been one of the women again mostly welsh women who did a court case in the federal court in new york naming ronald reagan and the joint chiefs of staff to try to get an injunction in that autumn october early november of 1983 to try to stop the first cruise missiles being brought in. And Rudy Giuliani was the, the then President Reagan's yes. attorney. So, oh, you know, he's Rudy been Giuliani's around a long time. And he tried to shut us up. He, he tried mm. to stop any of us being able to give evidence in the court. He said it was a cut and dried thing. In the end, the judge actually said that he hadn't, that Giuliani hadn't made a sufficiently strong case for the case to be thrown out yet. So we then had to actually raise some more money. We did this with uh, Centre for Constitutional Rights, which is still going. And actually, during some of the treaty negotiations, I ended up staying out in Queens with one of the today's lawyers with Centre for Constitutional Rights, because I kept up a bit of contact with them. And hearing all about the work that she's doing now, still completely supporting anyone who's suffering from human rights, whether it's due to weapons, war, but where there's a US connection in that. So 
um, just they do amazing work. And she invited me as a Greenham woman because they had all these archives and they found all these photographs and a lot of the papers there in their archives. And I went in and did a lunchtime brown bag talk <laughs> for them as a Greenham woman while I was there actually taking part in the negotiations on the treaty to prohibit all nuclear weapons, which is the treaty. But let me just go back to Greenham because things did change. And Greenham was a really important part of that change. And a number of us in different ways, we went to East Germany particularly and to Russia, to Moscow on groups. You know, there was Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. They were going by train. We did buses meeting with um, what were called, now what were they called, like a trust group and, you know, resistors to nuclear weapons. But also they were resistors to the Soviet system. And everything really changed also as, while I was at Greenham, three leaders, Brezhnev, Chernyenko and Andropov, all died. Mm -hmm. And then came a new kind of leader, and that was Mikhail Gorbachev. And he started recognizing with his perestroika and glasnost that they had to be more open and they had to reconstruct. And this did not fall on deaf ears in the West. And, of course, gave real hope to resistors, protesters in Poland and, and you know, Hungary and, and the, you know, Czechoslovakia and East Germany. Now, the treaty that got rid of the nuclear weapons was first raised in a talk in Reykjavik between Reagan and Gorbachev when they met in Reykjavik in October of 1986. Then they nearly agreed to get rid of all nuclear weapons, but the advisors all piled in and said, no, but you can get rid of this destabilizing, very destabilizing set of, of intermediate range nuclear weapons because they're the ones that would be fired first to, and start the war. And that treaty came into force, well, it was signed in December of 1987, and it came into force very shortly after that, because it was just between the two countries. And it stayed until Trump and Putin <laughs> pulled out. Now, it had done pretty much its job, but it could have been built on to do a broader job because those kinds of nuclear weapons are coming back into play now and they're not only coming back into play in Asia, they're coming back into play across Europe. And so we are in a very difficult situation with that and that treaty at least had held the line there, I think in a really important way. Why would Trump, I mean I have so many questions about Trump, but why, what was his justification? Was there a justification? Well, we don't need it for our yeah, Russia and American was, relations anymore. totally opposed to any kind of UN-based diplomacy. He thinks everything is done on a personal relationship out of the deal with the head honcho of whatever. That's, that's his mindset. And Putin, who it seems from a lot of documents, had quite a hand in making sure that it was Trump rather than Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. who became president in 2016, did that because he could see that Trump would be a complete disruptor of all the kinds of systems. Now, Putin did want to bring in a new missile and there was an argument already happening, even under Obama, that the new missile that they wanted to bring in was a land-based and an intermediate range. 
and therefore would violate the treaty. So there were already accusations, but there was a mechanism in the treaty to resolve all of that. And that's what, under Obama, they had been trying to make happen. And what Trump did then, Trump was the first to withdraw from the, the treaty, citing that Russia had violated. It was not yet proved that Russia had violated, but what Trump did was he opened the door then. So he was the first, and after six months, the treaty ceased to exist because a treaty with just two countries, if one withdraws, then after a certain length of time, it's not a treaty. So then... Putin is, has no constraints at all on his going ahead with this completely destabilizing, very dangerous nuclear war fighting generation nuclear weapons that had been banned in the 1980s at the height of the Cold this War. This is terrifying. Why are, why are people not talking about it more? They should be, shouldn't they? Yes, really. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, 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 the reasons is that Trump was president until January 2021. Actually, within two days of Biden becoming president, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Ban Treaty, actually met its entry into force conditions two and a half years after it had been negotiated at the UN. It entered into force in on January the 22nd of 2021. It is now an international law treaty. It's binding completely on all the states at present it's 55 of them that have fully joined signed there's a load more that have signed and not yet done that step but there are quite a lot more that are being put under a lot of pressure not even to sign who negotiated the treaty who adopted it in the UN General Assembly but they're coming under so much pressure from one or more of the nine nuclear armed states we're talking about just nine nuclear armed states the treaty only becomes legally binding in their national law when they go through that process but under international law there's a whole lot of other things that can be done and in this particular treaty this is a humanitarian disarmament treaty has a preamble that makes clear the role of civil society, also the role of the survivors, not just of the nuclear bombs that were used in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, but of all the nuclear bombs that were used in nuclear testing all over the world, from the Pacific right through to Nevada. There's so many different countries where some of the nine did their nuclear testing. And then if you add on the production of nuclear weapons, then you're starting to look at bases, you know, 60 miles from London, like Aldermaston Burfield, and had almost got forgotten that actually we have nuclear weapons ourselves. It's not only about US weapons. You know, and I think we, we do that quite a lot, actually. We yeah. focus on what other people are doing and realise that we're actually just we're as doing bad. it Exactly, exactly. And, and for me also... I would be very upset, and I would argue against, when there was anti-Americanism, which there was sometimes. There were sometimes people who had a political narrative that we just have to get rid of the American weapons. And so, again, that was partly why we set up Aldermaston, was to say, actually, Britain as a nuclear-armed state has been since October the 3rd, 1952, mm -hmm. when they did their first nuclear weapon test 
on t- a territory that Australia allowed them to have, but the Aboriginal people weren't asked. And they did some horrific plutonium trials on Aboriginal land and things like that. And we have to tell that story. So Greenham, we did so many actions. You know, I was one of three women that climbed into the air traffic control tower. Women would go to Greenham with bolt cutters and just cut and pull down huge sections of fence. In December of 1983, over 50,000 women came to Greenham. Hardly got media attention by that time. The nuclear weapons were in Greenham. 50,000 women with our bare hands singing to a particular harmonics level with chanting and rocking the fence just with our bare hands took down about four to five miles of the nine-mile perimeter base and especially the whole area around the nuclear weapons silos. And there were three different layers of policing and, and soldiering on the very inside of the base with the American soldiers with their guns ready, having been given permission that they could shoot if we got too close, if we got through the last layer of fencing, I think they interpreted it as. But then there were also British squaddies who alternated tours of duty in Ireland, but the squaddies would come from their tour of duty there to the tour of duty at Greenham. That is just crazy. They put up these extra layers, not only of fencing, so in some places there were five layers of fencing and barbed wire to get through, but also guard posts that looked like those guard posts that we saw one of the concentration camps that we've seen on TV and also that I saw in, in, in East Germany by the wall, mm-hmm. those smaller than the fencing with the very, very bright searchlights. But we still, we would look at that and we'd say, okay, so that's where that one is and that's where that one is. So if we go in on our bellies cutting the fences until we've passed all the searchlights were <laughs> were spinning that toward you know the, the fences and the outside look uh, watching what we were doing so we occupied the air traffic control tower after the nuclear weapons had come in after michael heseltine who was then secretary for defense had said in answer to a question asked by an mp in parliament be after we'd been pulling down so much of the fencing, say, oh, those Greenham women, you know, yes, they can cut the odd fence, but, you know, they'll never get to any of the sensitive areas of the base. Two days after Christmas, we were in the at the top of the air traffic control tower. We put a bedside, double bedside sheet banner saying peace on earth. And then we went into the actual inside partly because they didn't see us in the, the the banner and after about an hour with a freezing cold wind we because it was five o'clock when we went in so it was dark but you know we thought they'd see us we were getting cold and so we just decided we'd we'd occupy we, we didn't want them to pretend that we'd never been there we wanted to be arrested so we did go actually in we found a window that was able to be entered and went in and then we were there for another four hours it was nice and warm in there and there was a bit of of red lighting on on at that time but we found a lot of manuals in there about any kind of accident incident or use of nuclear chemical or biological weapons well by that time biological weapons were supposed to have been banned but they still had all of this stuff so they obviously kept some 
they hadn't actually got rid of because it was they were only banned under what was initially right. a US and a Soviet agreement that then was made multilateral afterwards. But the chemical weapons ha- weren't yet banned, although they, there were discussions that went back and forth and got totally deadla- deadlocked in Geneva. So we started writing Green and Women Are Everywhere onto each page that had anything that we thought was particularly interesting. So then we had to be sure that we were going to stay until they arrested us because we wanted to go to court. We wanted to show in court because writing on the documents did count as criminal damage. So they'd have to take us to court for criminal damage. After four hours there, we were by that time getting ravenously hungry as well. And we'd done everything we could do. We'd seen everything we could do and we wanted them to arrest us. We thought they'd leave us over overnight if they didn't, you know. So we flicked the main lights, <laughs> which they couldn't help but see, on and off and on and off and on and off, like on a SOS kind yeah. of sign. And then we heard this whole men's voices and, and boots and things and... And they came crashing in from the inside with rifles. You know, they they had their fingers on the triggers. And one of the three of us was actually an American woman. She kept kept saying, I'm an American citizen. You can't shoot me. (laughs) And I did. And me and Spider, we just started singing. We we all held our hands up to show we had nothing in our hands. And we said, look, we're agreed on women. Look, we're going to sing to you. Because we, they knew that by that time, you know, we sang uh, for oh everything. Oh my God, you're being held at gunpoint by... By American soldiers. By, it was the American soldiers. It was soldiers. the American soldiers because it's their property. We were in their air traffic control tower. The British had no jurisdiction around the silos area. That's it. We had actually gone into an area which, according to Michael Heseltine's description to, co- to the House of Commons was an area that he promised the House of Commons we could never get to, an area that was sensitive, i.e. an area under the full jurisdiction of the Americans where they were entitled to shoot us. I mean, I've only told you about a few of mine, but there were actions happening all the time. Someone did die at Greenham, didn't... I mean, I know nobody got shot, there have been but... two. There have been two horrible deaths... While I was there, a lovely young woman called Dee, uh, who used to come and go quite a lot, was mostly Bluegate. She was really quite young. I, I, I think she was late teens, early 20s. And she was hitchhiking to Greenham and she got raped and murdered. It took about three days before her body was found. So before there was confirmation that she'd been murdered, her family waved her off to come to Greenham. A lot of us, you know, I had a motorbike, but a couple of times my hands got injured by, you know, having it hit by things or whatever. And then I couldn't ride the motorbike and we just hitch. A lot of us did that. And, um, and so I can remember the police first coming up because the family were worried because they hadn't heard from her. And, you know, and I spoke to them at that time and, and um, you know, we hadn't seen her. And then... I had to kind of share the news with all the Greenham women that Dee had set off for Greenham and hadn't arrived. You know, I mean, all of us were racking our brains to think where could she have gone instead of Greenham because, you know... And then the news that um, that she, her body had been found and then her parents came up. Um, so that was one death which was really horrendous. And then another death uh, was a woman called Helen. This was after 
the after the INF treaty. So I I left Greenham when we were getting the INF treaty. So I I wasn't there then, and and the camp in the kind of year after kind of basically split into. To two, there was the yellow gate and there was mainly the blue gate as the missiles were beginning to be, you know, taken taken away. I think it could have been 1988 or 89. You see, yellow gate is, uh, was the main gate. So it was where the camp had to always be between the very busy A339 road with a lot of lorries and all sorts of things traveling along that. And our water pipe that the fire brigades union kept giving us every time the bailiffs would evict your standpipe, that's what we called it. The fire brigades union would come down with with more for us so that we always had a way to get water. And I think that Helen was waiting to cross the road and a police car towing a horse box is what I've heard. And the policeman must got diverted or something, turned to look or, or whatever happened. His vehicle veered, but the horse box hit Helen and killed her. Horrible, horrible accident. You spent five years at Greenham. These people must have been, I was going to say like family, but more, more than family because it was so intense. Surely. It was very, very, very intense. Yeah, and the women who were there at that time. I mean, when they finally left Greenham long after, in fact, local women had worked with Bluegate women on restoring the common and all of that. But finally, when they did leave, they did a memorial for Helen. But we also leave little memorials in the woods. Quite a lot of women ask, or their, or their families ask, that their, their ashes, when they die, that their ashes be scattered at Greenham. That, I think I'd probably like a few of mine to be scattered at Greenham and the rest to go into the sea. After your five years at Greenham, I don't know what the what the timeline was, but I do know that you ended up in what was then Yugoslavia. Yes. First of all, I, I just, I, I kind of left Greenham and I had a criminal record as long as your arm. I mean, it was all for the non-violent peace actions, but nevertheless, I'd been in and out of Holloway three, four times a year from 1982 onwards. And what was it like when you were at Holloway? Well, my first time was terrifying because I'd never done anything like this. And also I went in with quite a few women, but the first morning, most of the women got taken down to an open prison and just me and another woman who I didn't even know had been brought later were left in Holloway. And that's because there was we had another trial we had to be brought to. But I just thought, oh God, this is really scary. So I got put into the wing and it was an empty room but it had a bunk bed and a single bed which was already over overcrowding the sound of keys is everywhere and then my door got opened and I heard somebody a woman's voice and then the door got closed and I heard this woman sort of say hi oh you're the new one then and I kind of half turned to her and I I had been crying and she said Oh, no, it's your first time, isn't it? And she gave me a great big hug. That was my first real criminal. (laughs) So that was a big change for me. And I think quite a lot of other women was we didn't do the thing that the suffragettes did of declaring ourselves to be political prisoners. I think we'd come a different route. And, And so 
We spent our time in prison singing with the women. I got known as the singing Greenham woman. I would I would adapt some of our Greenham songs and some pop songs and things for Holloway lyrics. But also, quite often, you know, there were women in there who couldn't read and write and who you'd help them with that. There were women that just wanted to talk. You'd make friends. You'd learn about their lives. And you'd give support and they'd give support back. Yeah, occasionally, but it was really occasional in any women's prison I was ever in. And I was in, mostly in Holloway, but I was in Cookham Wood, initially sentenced for quite a long sentence, but then on appeal, it was shortened to 30 days. So, but I'd been sent to um, Cookham Wood and that at that time, which has more lifers in it and stuff. And then also one time at an open prison in Sussex, actually, Kent or Sussex, we saw the politics inside the prison. We received the kindness of women who were in there because they were prostitutes. Why were they prostitutes? Because they were poor or black. They're in there for drugs. Why were they there for drugs? Because they were drugs mules. They were poor. They were black. They were sometimes... Asian, particularly elderly relatives of drugs dealers and, and importers. Get the bigs, mostly men, on the outside. Don't lock an elderly Asian woman that can barely speak English who thought she was carrying toys for her England-living grandchildren. You know, her daughter didn't know, but her son-in-law knew. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing we learned about, the, you know, the racism, the poverty, that prostitutes who ended up in prison usually ended up when they finally either couldn't or decided they weren't going to give freebies to the police on the Streatham High Road or Kingsland Road or only when they were saying no, because otherwise the police let them be. And that's why I talk about women who have been prostituted. I don't go in for this whole sex work thing like it's a woman's right to choose. Absolutely. Okay, a few women maybe make those choices. A very few but women. if you actually said to them, if you didn't have to be earning this kind of money, or if you didn't have to, is this the job you'd be doing? If you'd had the education yes. to do a different job, and then they kind of do tend to hesitate, and then they say, well, no, actually. No, exactly. I say this absolutely all the time when you see, luckily, not many men in my life, but when you see people talking about casually going to strip clubs or prostitutes yeah. or, or porn, which has become really a, a very casual thing, I yes. say this exact same and thing. And a lot of those women are traffic, and a lot of green women have actually are, are still or have worked in rape crisis worked with migrants and refugee women have you know worked or are working you know with women who've been trafficked asylum seekers locked up in, in the asylum system it became very important to us and I spent quite a lot of time kind of writing maybe that's the Pluderhovkind in me still you know then writing to women that I had met in prison until their sentences would end mm. and they would write back every so often and sending them birthday cards things like that and a lot of us did that a lot of green and women we you know the first couple of sentences I well, one of my sentences, I did some fasting. But when I realized that that just meant that they were going to put me in onto a different wing, 
I decided I'll ex- I won't talk it, call it fasting. I'll get the food and then I'll give it to another woman. And they, you know, if there's any of that food that is n- nice enough, because the good food is the stuff that goes very quickly. So then they couldn't accuse. I, I wasn't trying to do a hunger strike. I was looking like I was accepting food, but I kind of wanted to not accept. It was maybe the Persephone myth of if I don't eat the pomegranate seeds, mm. then maybe I won't go back into prison. I think that, you know, but of course I did go back into prison and that was often my choice because doing the actions was my choice, taking responsibility with those actions was my choice, talking about why I had gone into the air traffic control tower or blocked a nuclear warhead convoy. We haven't even got on to how Greenham expanded into something called Cruise Watch, which did involve men, local people, on all the routes leading out of Greenham down to all the different places they went initially until they no longer could go to all sorts of different places and in the NATO parlance melt into the countryside Mm. because we would have seen them, we would have marked them with gloop, paint mixed with porridge because that was quite difficult to get off. So they ended up always after the first couple of years really ending up on the military planes of Salisbury Plains where the British army has always done its exercises where they'd be protected by a lot of British army after all and which of course took the whole so-called secret deployment melting into the countryside strategy. It just made a nonsense of that. In the same way as underwater drones and different things now make a nonsense of the so-called secret deterrence strategy of being hidden somewhere where, you know, an adversary could never find them. For goodness sake, the British and French nuclear armed submarines crashed into each other (laughs) on an exercise only a few years ago in the Bay of Biscay. Now, this whole notion of deterrence. So... You know, what happens if there's a nuclear war? And this is what we really started talking to people about, was what happens when there's a nuclear war is that if anyone uses a nuclear weapons weapon of any kind, for whatever reason, you know, Malcolm Rifkin talked about, a, well, we could use Trident for a shot across the bow as a warning shot. You do that, you start a war. There is no tactical use of nuclear weapons. It's always strategic, and it will lead to a nuclear It'll lead to nuclear annihilation. That is absolutely terrifying. So my step out of Greenham was then to work for Greenpeace. So for four years, I got hired to work for Greenpeace. On It was like my dream job. They didn't care about my criminal record. They wanted all my skills and organising to be a nuclear weapons organiser, particularly focusing on the nuclear testing, because the Greenpeace ship, had been bombed in Auckland Harbour by French Secret Service in 1985. And they wanted to have somebody who wasn't traumatised by that to restart the nuclear test ban campaign fully. And they chose me. And my first task was to do the whole nuclear test ban coming back campaign 
with the launch of the new Rainbow Warrior that was an eco-Rainbow Warrior with the most beautiful sails that would only need the um, engine and, and fossil fuels to be used for a very small number of its expeditions. And I was able to have campaigners and money to work with campaigners to get the new Rainbow Warrior. such a beautiful, beautiful I remember ship. it. I remember seeing Launched it on the news. We're talking Hamburg. about things I actually remember now. Well, we no, brought her news. to London from Hamburg. We brought her to Copenhagen and Leningrad, as it still was called, mm-hmm. to Stockholm. And then I think it was from... Stockholm to London and then and then Ireland of course which was wonderful and and then uh, and then across from Ireland to New York and everywhere we went you know music I mean you too came on board (laughs) I can't remember all the different people that we met but we also opened the Rainbow Warrior. There were queues of people who could come on board, signing a petition calling for nuclear weapons testing to be banned, for the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which frankly had been on the books diplomatically for many, many years. But after four years, we were on the cusp of getting it. But the war started in Yugoslavia. I was at that time still working with Greenpeace. A group of us wanted Greenpeace to take a very strong anti-war stand. They chose for reasons that I do understand that they weren't going to do that. But I then felt that I had to. This was war in my time, such an appalling war of nationalism and fascism in my time. And so I resigned from Greenpeace. And then I signed up a group of Greenham women who had been part of the maybe the last group of Greenham women before Greenham became the common land. They were based in Southampton, but a meeting it was a meeting at Greenham Common that decided that they were going to start something called Women's Aid to Former Yugoslavia. They were going to f- raise money, buy some post office vans, seven-ton post office vans, and start driving aid. Initially, the idea was to drive aid to as many of the parts of Yugoslavia that were at war and were breaking up. And so I went as a driver on my first, but I had already been part of a group of women in London who had campaigned under the name of Women Against War Crime when the news in 1992 was coming out of rape really being used not just as a byproduct of militarism, which is how a lot of people had thought about it, but very distinctly and definitely and intentionally as a, a, a war crime against the women and against the other ethnic groups. Mm. Remember, the Yugoslav war was an ethnic war. Ethnic cleansing suddenly was a term that we were all hearing and, and, and using. So I was part of a three-truck convoy. We we raised the money. I was living in Dalston at that point. I got the money out of all my neighbours, got lots of different groups to donate. We had specific things we wanted to donate. It was clothes, it was sanitary products, because we were focusing on the needs of women. Things like nice new bras, knickers, you know, Marks and Stencers or John Lewis or something that were completely unused children's toys, children's needs, nappies. And then with the other money we raised, 
we were going to the EU depot and getting medicines. But again, the things that the women who were working with refugees said were needed. And at the same time, we had started to raise money to actually get trained rape crisis counsellors to go and work with the groups of women in Slovenia, in Croatia, and in Belgrade, who not only were trying to resist the nationalism that was actually splitting some of them apart, they were, these were mainly feminist women who'd known each other. In Tito's Yugoslavia, they'd got their educations, often in the same places, they had Marxist feminist analysis of all these things. But in this war, well, certainly they were in different countries that as, as Yugoslavia was breaking up. And we were able to go between them and among them. And all of them had decided that they had to be working specifically with women who'd been raped on all sides. So we literally, we drove into Slovenia. That was the first stop, stayed in Ljubljana, stayed in a refugee camp unloaded the things that were there for that. Then we drove through to Croatia, stayed in Zagreb. Again, talked to the women there. There was a centre for centre dealing with violence against women that was run by Vesna and, and oh, some wonderful women. And we talked to them about their needs and the following year, in fact, sent them a lovely woman called Rachel that then started living there in Zagreb, had a little flat used to have anybody stay in her bed whenever or on her floor. She spent quite a lot of time, you know, spending time actually at the revi- at the refugee camps like Vinkovsky, working with the counsellors that she was training. I had the incredible privilege of sitting in on one of the sessions on one of the trips. I had the real privilege of, of, of being invited to... When we dropped off a whole load of... Um, of the clothes and the sanitary products and the medicine things at a refugee camp called Finkovsky, which was sort of a little bit on the border of Croatia and Bosnia. But nearly all the refugees there were Bosnian, many of them from places like Srebrenica. So we, we took this, this stuff and I got invited by the councillors who were from the Zagreb group. Actually, all of us were, all of us who'd been driving, because we were women only, all three um, of the, the trucks, we had two drivers and a, a kind of third person who could, in some cases, drive or who did other kinds of, of things. And what was explained to us was that if you suggested that women come and talk to you about rape in the refugee camps, nobody comes. Nobody comes. But if you set up a place where women can do knitting, sewing, you know, traditional crafts and earn money from them and they did the most exquisite lace work and knitting and all of that so one of the things we did was when we dropped stuff off we would also receive from them what they had made and we'd bring that back to the UK and then sell this stuff then that would earn more money but they'd be telling it was all it was both a selling and an awareness raising so I sat in on this session And initially, it was just kind of, oh, and that's right, because one of the women who was in it also spoke really good English. They would just start to be just talking, maybe so quietly, maybe ones and twos or something like that. And a woman would maybe say something and start crying. And very gently, the counsellor would say, are you all right for, they introduced us, are you all right that we tell 
our friends from England who brought the wool and the cotton and stuff. What you just said, is this all right with everybody to, to the week so that they know what what's really been going on? And in, when I was there, they said yes. And then we'd have it translated that she was talking about something she could never talk about in front of any of the kids. And the only other, the only men in the refugee camps were elderly because the other men had been shot. Mm-hmm. Their sons, their husbands, their brothers had been massacred. And this was part of it for her to be saying was, I can't talk about what happened to me. I can't talk about the rape because my son and my husband, my father, my brother are dead. What happened to me is nothing compared to that. And so that very gently the council would say, but what happened to you is really important. It's really terrible. Do you want to say a little bit about how you're feeling? You don't have to tell us exactly anything. Anything you don't want to tell us, you don't tell us. But just how you're feeling, because it's still in your memory. It's still, it's made you cry. And then gradually you'd have several women and they'd kind of, you know, they'd almost physically move a little closer to each other and they would talk. And these classes, they were called, were work classes and they were held for two hours almost every day. And during that time, another couple of the women from the Women's Centre in Zagreb would be kind of looking after the children with toys and doing a lot of really active toy play, education-y type things with them. So it all it kind of came together in that kind of a way. Now we couldn't drive direct at all to Serbia because that that was the main kind of of frontier. We had been invited, and some truck groups were able to go to a Bosnian town, um, Medica, I think it was called, and take stuff direct into there. But I wasn't able to do that, so we came out. We went to uh, Budapest. We were given somewhere to park the, the trucks and to stay overnight there. Then we had to pack all of the medical stuff, only the medical stuff, because Serbia didn't need clothes. All the medical stuff into the heavier suitcases. You can imagine that we all had trolleys to, to take. And we boarded a train and we went to Serbia. And the women in Serbia were calling themselves Women in Black. Now, I had known Women in Black from 1989 when I found out that a really good friend of mine, again, a Greenham connection, an Israeli woman... I was going to say Israel. That's what I know of the Women in Black. Exactly. Well, this really wonderful woman that I'd met at a peace conference in the Netherlands, Hagar Rublev, she had been living in Paris and actually... And she said, well, you know, come to me in Paris because I, I need to talk to you about how you can do nonviolence in such a way as to be effective because the Green and women are really effective. And she'd come to the workshop. She'd helped women in different languages. She spoke Spanish, Italian, Hebrew, Arabic, some Arab, you know, she was a Moroccan Jew. She was very close to Palestinian women in Israel. She did a lot of stuff with them. She... She was one of the women that founded the Women in Black vigils that take place and still take place in Jerusalem, but also in Haifa when there's a particular, you know, like very recent in, in what's happening in Gaza. The, then the Haifa women, Israelis and Arab, who are Palestinian Israelis, together doing the vigils. 
And so I had done a vigil with them in Jerusalem, but these were the Yugoslav women. And I said, why are you calling yourself women in black? And they said, because for us, we feel that we are, you know, the Serb, that it's Serb nationalism. It's, you know, Milosevic, it's Mladic, you know, the Bosnian Serb fascist leader. These are the people doing the militarism. It's the Yugoslav National Army doing the raping, or a lot of the raping, and the militias under Mladic. And, and so we are the ones persecuting and harming and raping the Bosnian Serbs. We have to take responsibility by, in the middle of our capital, standing and saying no, standing very visibly in silence, but with our messages and our leaflets explaining that none of this war is in our name and giving information about the deaths and doing this in public. And they were, you know, when I stood with them, men were shouting horrible things because we were being told what it was they were shouting and coming up very threateningly and coming up and spitting at us. And, and we just kept that line of nonviolence with one or two of the women handing out the leaflets. Those of us who, I had been one of the women who'd started Women Against War Crime the year before that, and got a whole bunch of women, you know, the whole bunch of us got together and did this and held a, a demo in a Trafalgar Square. But we said, this sounds like what we need to do. Maybe we should call ourselves Women in Black UK. And that's how we became Women in Black London. And then we just kept that contact up. So I began to go back and forth to, particularly to Zagreb or Belgrade quite frequently. And because Belgrade was more closed off, a lot of women could go to Zagreb and Eve Ensler, who wrote the um, Vagina Monologues, she also wrote an article called Rachel's Bed. And there's a section of the monologues that clearly, I can tell that she got invited for exactly the same thing as I got to sit in on one of these sessions at one of the refugee camps that Rachel or, you know, the other counsellors had, had run because it comes from the testimony of the different women from Bosnia. Were so, you ever, you're going into a, a, what is essentially at the time still a war zone, did you ever feel threatened? Yeah, there was one incident. We were supposed to be going across the border to, I think, Medica. In fact, I think we did cross the border a little way and there was some um, shooting and we had to kind of get out of there. But some Canadian peacekeepers then turned up as we were getting out there and said, you should never have crossed that border. And you, you, you must have crossed one of the, the back borders or something like that. And they explained that, yes, sometimes that we, we could, but it was too dangerous at that time because there were some, some shooting. So they, there had been the shooting. It had hit the truck, I think. You know, we'd had shooting done at us at Greenham, one that went right through my whole, the car windows. But I actually, when I came back from that trip, I put myself in a, a St. John ambulance first aid thing because we realised at that time none of us had first aid training. So I at least got a whole week of first aid training and I'd specifically said, I want to know how to understand things that can go wrong in a military situation as well as, you know, people having a heart attack mm. or, or, or something else like that. But apart from that, 
I mean, we got stuck at the Serbian border sometimes for hours. I did some spray painting in purple, green and white, the suffragette colours, messages. There were women part of Women in Black, Belgrade, like Milka. She was, she herself had come from the Serbian side, but she'd married a Bosnian Muslim. Mm. She, her children, her whole life from then on was in Sarajevo with her husband and her two sons. Her husband had died. She was there with her two sons and her son disappeared, was taken off a train. And now we know murdered because he had a Muslim surname. Milka had come had managed to get out of Sarajevo and got to Belgrade with her youngest son. And her other son was, I think I have this story right, was travelling after the whole close down of, of, of Sarajevo to try to get, was trying to, to join her. So his train had to go through this part. But he had papers, but he had a Muslim surname and they were stopped by militia. So it wasn't a formal thing or whatever it was I we don't know but some of the bodies have been found I do know that but mm. at the time that I got to know Milka she desperate was hoping against hope that he was in that her son was in some kind of camp she did the bravest thing in the world I mean, she was this tiny woman her main thing was that I would go to the market with just 10 marks in actually in Deutschmarks We'd get that changed every morning because inflation was out of control. And then, and I go obviously with a couple of the women, including often Milka, because Milka was a cook, a most brilliant, wonderful cook. We would buy whatever we could buy with what the exchange rate was at, you know, nine o'clock that morning. <laughs> and she would turn that into also Bosnian pies, you know, all kinds of bread, all sorts of wonderful food, not just for the women who used it as an office, but that kitchen was cooking food for all those women to take back, mm. either to their families or to older people, particularly on, on pensions who weren't getting more than 10 Deutschmarks. People were starving in Belgrade during some of that time. So they were sharing with their families and also their neighbours. And I stayed for a couple of months on one of the trips, just sleeping in a corner of that office and really being part of of the whole community of that. But in 1994, I was running out of money and I still had my flat and all that. And then I got offered a job that initially was just going to be temporary. And I thought I could travel from there also to more easily, in fact. And that was in Geneva to monitor the nuclear test ban negotiations that were starting at the Conference on Disarmament among all the key diplomats in Geneva. So the work I'd been involved with for, for Greenpeace had carried on having reverberations. A number of the things that I'd set in train, of course, then also Bill Clinton had become president, had replaced the very pro-nuclear testing George Bush Sr. So Bill Clinton agreed to a, a moratorium. Some work I'd been doing with Greens in France, even after Greenpeace, had got in 1992 that the Greens pushed Mitterrand to agree a temporary moratorium. But that helped. Then we had done an action going to Novaya Zemlya with a Greenpeace boat this time not. We, we took the Rainbow Warrior back to uh, the French nuclear test site. 
I had to live in Paris during that and sleep in the corner of the Greenpeace office when that was actually happening. I got to know a number of like the French Greens and lots of others. There was a very small Greenpeace office and we kind of really set that up. But that work continued after I left Greenpeace. And so we'd got Mitterrand's moratorium and we'd got Gorbachev, actually, mm. I think at that point. It was just before he left office, he called a moratorium. And then so we, when we got the US moratorium, suddenly that kick-started all the changes that were necessary. And it was agreed by the diplomats that they'd start to negotiate the nuclear test ban treaty. It took them three years. And during that time, I mainly lived in Geneva, actually just across the French border. I couldn't afford Geneva. No, it's so expensive. But I did have a little flat in Bernie Voltaire. But from there... Whenever I'd have a bit of space, when there'd be a space in the negotiations, I'd go to either Zagreb or Belgrade. So I kept up the very close contact. And occasionally, some of the women were coming for conferences and things, and they'd always stay with me in my little flat, and I'd take them down, because I had a, a media pass, actually, which gave me... I could, I could drive them down to, to the Palais de Nation, make sure I could get them in. Because sometimes they needed to actually be talking to diplomats, mm-hmm. and, you know, so we did all of that. So I stayed very close to Women in Black all those years, and still am. I can almost visualise it, this network of women, the web of women across the world. Absolutely wonderful that we're using feminine skills. You talked about the crafts, you talk about the creative, the the emotional intuition almost that, that gives us that edge, I think, over men that sometimes means we've been bypassed or overlooked. But actually, when we bring that together and bring that to the forefront... It makes us different It makes men. us different, exactly. It's, you know, men have certain kinds of power through patriarchy and they learn certain skills. And unfortunately, quite a lot of those may be military or hierarchical skills. But men can unlearn those Absolutely. things and relearn. And we see this with some of the, the young men with the climate struggles, which, which you know, are, are most mostly mixed uh, but women we bring something different to the table we have a different way of looking at the world we have a different way of making the connections we're not just okay I'm going to be against nuclear weapons so this is how I'm going to do it because as you begin to go I first went to Greenham because it was women only and because it was against nuclear weapons and I had been raised a pacifist and you know nuclear weapons was the very worst and, you know, nuclear weapons was the very worst. So after Geneva, what did your travels look like? Well, I mostly was back in the UK. I was going to New York at least once a year for conferences of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And also short versions of the meetings were being held in Vienna and Geneva as well. So I was still going to those places, actually going to Vienna a lot more than I used to because the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty that I'd worked on while in Geneva, that was established with its implementing organisation in Vienna. And uh, I was often being invited to come over and give talks 
to the new staff being brought on and to science students who were thinking of getting jobs in verifying the the CTBT. So I was going back and forth to Vienna quite a lot, which was lovely, actually, because I hadn't known that city before and I very much. And I, I would always have a bit more time to myself if I was going there to give a couple of lectures. And I would always try to take in some music while I was there. So that was wonderful. And then I moved to Scotland for two years, and that was to coordinate a year-long blockade of the nuclear submarine deployment base for the British nuclear weapons, which was at a place called Faslane, near Helensburgh, up in Scotland, on the Clyde, actually on, on a part of it called the Gerloch. And I got myself a little flat in a village, sort of up the slope from the Gerloch. And lo and behold, from my living room window, I could actually see the Trident submarines going in and out, back and forth from the base at Faslane, where we were organising this year-long blockade. And it was a year-long blockade of people coming from all over the world to kind of protest, and if they felt ready and, and right for it, to sit down and blockade it and even to be arrested. And so I was living there as part of this coordinating group. And that was great because I really got to know Scotland during that time. I really lived there. I felt very much at home. And in fact, I started to take steps to buy the flat that I was renting. Only I fell in love with my partner, Hina, who I met at a cocktail party outside the Burfield nuclear bomb factory of the UK. Back when I was at Greenham, I founded with two other women a peace camp just for one weekend every month back in 1985 at Aldermaston, which is the main nuclear bomb factory. People have heard of that name. It's, it's where the Aldermaston marches always went to or from. Well, Burfield is about four miles from Aldermaston and kind of co-located and does the other part of the bomb activities. And so... As part of the Aldermaston Women's Peace Camp, which I was no longer really involved in, but because I was one of their mothers, they always invited me down for one of their parties and they had them as cocktail parties. And I turned up to this and met this lovely woman called Hina, who had come up from Southampton. She was a lawyer. She had been at Greenham, but I hadn't really remembered her particularly from then because there were a lot of women that came and went at Greenham. But we fell in love and we Aww. got together. So she was a lawyer in Southampton and then she was asked by the firm to set up a, the London office for the law firm that dealt in prison law in South London. So she, every Friday, was taking that incredibly long journey up to Helensborough where I would pick her up with my little car. And it wasn't sustainable, but we were in love. And, you know, she spent the Christmas New Year with me and we talked and talked. And by about March of 2008, I decided I would actually move back to London. I hadn't got rid of my flat there anyway. I just had friends staying there while I was in Scotland. So I didn't live in Scotland after that. But while I was in Scotland and all these groups. We had a group of survivors and those survivors' children and grandchildren come from Hiroshima and Nagasaki to Faslane to do a protest and in fact to even get arrested. And they all stayed at my little flat, kind of in rows in the living room when they came out of, of prison. <laughs> you know. 
and they put themselves in a youth hostel beforehand while they did they kind of did a bit of bonding with each other because they didn't know each other all that well but when they came out of prison they were just they all met up at my flat and I had the most amazing people coming and staying poets like Adrian Mitchell who <laughs> drank the best part of my, my wonderful Glen Ord whiskey um, in the night before Adrian was going to go you know I took him down then for him and a number of writers actually and poets and singers and and so on, did a blockade together. I mean, you know, A.L. Kennedy was there, you know, Hilary Wainwright. Oh, there were some amazing on that blockade. And people came from all over the world, from the, from the U.S., from the Peace Boat, from Japan, came with a whole lot of Peace Boat students. What I heard from all of them was they talked about what nuclear weapons do. They talked about the humanitarian Im- impacts and the health impacts and the destructive, you know, environmental contamination of, of nuclear weapons. And in the two years that I was in Faz Lane, just found myself thinking, we actually have to ban them. We can't keep waiting to try to do the sort of detailed treaty like the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. We can't wait for the nuclear armed states that are doing the nuclear production and, and, and threatening to use. Because that's why it took 40 years before we managed to ban nuclear testing. We have to go to the non-nuclear countries, talk to them about the humanitarian, health, environmental, contamination, destructive impacts and consequences of nuclear weapons. If there's even one accident, if there's one use, whether that use Mm. is by accident or by miscalculation or whether it's intentional, what does that mean for humanity? And we got the scientists on board to really start teaching that again. And the thing that I really contributed was instead of working for the kind of detailed treaty like we had been able to do at the end of the Cold War with the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, we had to take a leaf out of the humanitarian disarmament movement that banned landmines and banned um, cluster munitions and basically convinced the world that these things are inhumane weapons that they should be banned for moral reasons, but they can be banned under the international humanitarian law, not just using like the arms control kind of laws, and that the whole world is threatened with extinction by the nuclear weapons held by just nine nuclear-armed countries. And meanwhile, there was a group of doctors in Australia who were coming to exactly the same conclusion. And that's really what came together. The Australians started an organisation called International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. And, you know, they were trying to raise awareness. And I came along with all my knowledge about how treaties work, my PhD on multilateral nuclear arms control and, and, and treaties, which I finally got in 2004. And during that time, I had it really clear in my mind what works and what doesn't work if you want to get a treaty. So I brought all of that. And by 2009, I was made into a, a co-chair of ICANN, along with the Australian doctor that had founded, and Akira Kawasaki from Japan, 
who was one of the directors of Peace Boat, had been very involved in educating the next generation of students through Peace Boat and worked very closely with the Hibaksha, with the survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So this so was the, leading up to when you got your Nobel Peace Prize. The three of us. Arrived. Well, but, but we're talking 2009 still. So this is leading up to my next periods of travel. Right, OK. <laughs> so that meant as part of that. So we, the three of us became the co-chairs. And one of the first things that I needed to do was to talk to some governments that would form a core group. And we would get some key aspects that we could use to lead to a ban into the 2010 review conference of the NPT, which was in New York in 2010. And I was in New York for the whole month, went to all the best sushi restaurants in New York because they're affordable. (laughs) That's pretty much what I ate during that whole month. Sushi in the States is so much more affordable than here. What is that about? And it's, it's, you know, if you know where to go. And the other thing is, of course, the UN is Midtown New York. So are a lot of really good Japanese. Japanese restaurants <laughs> and sometimes I could even get the Japanese delegation to invite me but quite often I was just going there after at the end of a very long day of you know working with civil society and, and diplomats on this treaty and then writing things up from it I would just go by myself to a little sushi place I had a couple of favorites that was New York and then we got those two key elements that talked about the, the use of nuclear weapons was basically contrary to international humanitarian law. And we also got one, you know, I got various different governments to put various different ways of saying we also need some kind of nuclear weapon convention, nuclear abolition treaty, nuclear ban treaty, even quoting from the Secretary General of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, who at that time in 2008 had said it could be a nuclear weapon convention or it could be a framework of interconnected treaties. We got one out of about five or six statements that had made it it through the whole process of negotiations on the final document until the very last few days. And in the last few days, the nuclear armed states just went plowing through, opposing. And because the chair was wanting to get it all by consensus, what this meant was we got just the one that was actually quoting the Secretary General. It's the only one that stayed there, but it was still there. And after that, we had the tools to start building. And I knew that what we needed to do was set up an office in Geneva. So I was beginning to go back to Geneva, but I didn't want to lead that office because, well, personal and political reasons, what I wanted to do was hire a younger generation Mm. of activists to do it and to do the work that I had been doing in the 1990s. Also, I was still in love with Hina and still am, by the way. (laughs) And so I didn't actually want to move to Geneva fully. So I got some money. The Norwegian government, very kindly, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, gave a grant for me to set up what I called the Geneva hub of ICANN. You know, we hired staff that would be able to talk to the diplomats day by day. It became where we did most of the heavy lifting in terms of diplomacy and working with a core group of states. So there I was back to Geneva going back and forth. And during that time, I had to go to certain key countries to sort of raise awareness of this. One of the countries I had to go to was Cuba. I always wanted to go to Cuba. 
My partner really wanted to go to Cuba, but her father had had a very bad stroke. And after her father died, I just said, you know what, I actually need to go to Cuba because they're being really problematic. We're trying to get a lot of the non-nuclear countries to take on the leadership to get this treaty. And Cuba's on board with getting a treaty, but they're still wanting this version of the treaty that was all bells and whistles that some of us had drafted back in the 90s. We drafted it then, just as we were finalising the test ban treaty. And the notion of that treaty was that it would have to be negotiated somewhere like the Geneva Conference on Disarmament, which works by consensus. And the thing about that is that just meant that any single state, but particularly any single nuclear armed state, can veto And that's what kept happening. And that happened for 40 years before we could get the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And it was only the end of the Cold War that changed the dynamics between Russia and the US for that treaty to become possible. We were saying we can't wait 40 years because nuclear weapons are being still... Yes, there's been some reductions, but there's still 13,000 nuclear weapons and they're now in the hands of nine governments. And a lot of those leaders are, are not people that you would want to, mm. to, to trust with anything. So I had to change Cuba's mind because Cuba was saying, yes, we want this treaty, but it must be done in the Conference on Disarmament, which was exactly the position that the UK government had and the US government had and so on. So we decided on holiday and we paid for it out of our own money we made it we treated ourselves and it was wonderful it was like three weeks where I did most of my work in the first two three days the big meeting was hosted by the son of Fidel Castro who I had got to know (laughs) in my work during the 90s he was a nuclear physicist He'd been educated in Moscow. Uh, His name was also Fidel Castro Diaz-Balat. He was the eldest son. And he and I had corresponded every so often. And and when he was having to do speeches in English, he would often send them to me in the version that his translators had given him and say, can you just help because they didn't know some of these terms. So we had this kind of email friendship. So I had let him know that I was coming and that I wanted to hold a meeting with him and with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And it was out of that that came this big meeting where I talked about the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons, related all the risks and the dangers to what nearly happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, and then said, we need Cuba to support making this a treaty that will ban and eliminate nuclear weapons, but will be negotiated, not in the Conference on Disarmament, where everybody can veto it, but actually, how about the UN General Assembly? Because that is a negotiating forum for the arms trade treaty. You know, with Cuba's help, we can get enough states to agree to turn the UN General Assembly into a negotiating forum for multilateral nuclear disarmament. But I'd said all of this publicly. Cuba changed its position Mm. and they became the front runners in arguing for negotiations to be in the UN. And I coined this phrase, open to all but blockable by none. And that became... The, the phrase, and that's actually how we got the treaty. So that trip to Cuba was 
it was wonderful for Hina and me because... I was going to say, did you have fun? Oh, Hina is God, one of my favourite places. Brilliant. Did you do some salsa? Hina speaks Spanish completely fluently. And so we could stay at the Casa Particulare. Yeah. So we stayed there from the very beginning in, in Havana. Apart from having all the meetings in Havana, we even did the tourist things of the cars from the 50s with their driver, you know, playing music and going just around the whole Havana area, and which was such fun. And we had a great driver who was just great. He played reggae, he played 50s stuff, he played 60s stuff. And sitting in this car felt like being... <laughs> in, you know, one of the old cars that, you know, I was very occasionally in, like the hearse, where we crossed America. It was a 1950s American car. And this driver was just so lovingly keeping it going on the roads. So it was only when we left Havana that we actually rented a car. I, of course, wanted to check out the Bay of Pigs because it you know, it was such a memory in terms of, of the politics and to see the museums and things like that. But we stayed right on the beach and went swimming every single day. And they fed us the most heavenly fruit and vegetables. And the chicken tasted like it did in my childhood. The f- fish was so fresh. And everywhere we went pretty well, we would try to find somewhere to swim unless we were right inland and because of Hina's fluent Spanish we would be able to really talk with people and just so wonderful and and we went through the most incredible thunderstorms and there was just this one thunderstorm was so massive that I just pulled over into a lay-by actually uh, actually off the road altogether because I figured that these vehicles trucks and things that were going would not be able to see us if we were just on the side of the road so I pulled off into a very quickly turned into almost a quagmire but we did manage to get back out once the storm passed so that was very dramatic and we went over the mountains to It was an area that is famous for having had the very original people of the the Cuban islands mm. uh, who'd lived because we visited one of their caves, which was amazing. It's beyond Guantanamo. So I was yeah. going to say, did you go to Guantanamo? Yes, well, did, but I mean, just looked. Yeah. You can only from the, the top look over and see. But yes, and I mean, Guantanamo itself as a city is a, mm-hmm. a very nice city with nice uh, sort of quite broad streets. It, oh, everywhere we went, there were Cubans and singing music, m- music. And we would buy the CDs. Now, quite a lot of them didn't work, but... A few worked in the car, and so we were singing these (laughs) Cuban songs as we drove. The music is everywhere, isn't it? It It's so atmospheric, and the dance. And one of my favourite memories of Cuba actually is taking a a salsa lesson in Trinidad, where these dancing couple led us down the the back streets, and we thought, "Oh gosh, this is Mm. going a bit weird." And through someone's kitchen Mm. and up the back stairs onto their rooftop, where it was just incredible. At sunset, there were sheep drying on the washing line and we were having a salsa lesson to that beautiful music and the dancing and the sunset and the mountain behind with the sheets billowing in the in the evening mm. low evening light it was uh, super romantic yeah that sounds wonderful I could so go back there we went to one salsa class and it, we just went there to kind of listen to music and while traveling I got into Tukola which is the the local cola normally with chocolate ice cream actually <laughs> 
But sometimes in the evening when we stopped, I would have rum and tukula. So I was having a little rum and tukula and I, we heard the music and we just went in and popped in and we could see these dancers. It was so wonderful. We sat on the, on the side just to watch and listen to the music. It was just so wonderful. But then one of the dancers sort of came and oh, actually two of the dancers and each one reached to one to Hina and one to me. And my dancer just, he was very complimentary, which means that he was a very good <laughs> teacher. But he got me really sort of dancing and the dancing was so wonderful. And we just came from that absolutely elated. While we were at that coastal town, we actually did 40 miles on the most incredibly potholed road to stay for one night, almost like a ca- an encampment sort of sort of area where you could take boat trips through the bays and through the mo- mangrove swamps and things like that, which we did. And then we asked him to let us out of the boat so that we could swim back. But we, oh, it was I so I love you and your swimming. Even now in Brighton, you go, you go swimming most days, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. Even in, through... As we speak, it's uh, midwinter. And I went freezing. swimming this morning. Yeah. <laughs> makes me cold even watching the people down there the last time I lived in Brighton there wasn't such a swimming culture and I've come back 10 years later and suddenly everyone's swimming it's like we've just discovered the beach yeah <laughs> when I was a kid in Shoreham in fact I went swimming probably from April to October but I didn't know people that went right through the winter then and now so you're right does. so I think it's it, yeah well a lot of people do it yeah not everyone yeah yeah but you, <laughs> in fact, not me yeah and, and in Cuba quite often they were saying, but don't you think it's too cold? It's uh, I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell me about um, the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, that was in Norway. That, and, and obviously, <clears throat> when the ch- negotiations were happening, they did indeed happen in the UN General Assembly, which meant being in New York for that whole period. By that time, I did not even have the money. I had no money, no professional money, no grant money, no personal money to be able to um, to have a, 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 a hotel room or even a, an Airbnb. So I stayed in Queens and I went in on the number seven, I think it, it was, every day. It was a long schlep. That was difficult, but I still, I just love New York and I still went for the sushi. But I was given a, a, a room with a, a friend who worked for the Centre for Constitutional Rights I did find the the commute difficult, but that's where the treaty was negotiated. And it was, I moved out of the seaside here in Hove within three weeks of the treaty being adopted by 122 non-nuclear states of the UN General Assembly because the nuclear armed states boycotted. Shame on them. Mm. But they didn't have a veto. They couldn't stop it happening. They couldn't stop the rest of the world saying, actually, all of us are put at risk from these weapons. So we are going to negotiate the best treaty we can. It was open to all. It was blockable to none. Those nuclear armed states were invited. They should have been there. They weren't. They can't complain about the treaty now because the treaty has quite a lot of impact. Meanwhile, about a month after I had moved to Hove, living out of boxes, about two months after the treaty was actually adopted, no, three months maybe, the Nobel Committee announced from Oslo that they were awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to ICANN. 
and I had hoped that they would actually do a joint prize to ICANN and Hidankyo. Hidankyo was the long-running organization, sort of umbrella movement of the Hibaksha, the survivors, and they had been nominated that same year, 2017. I was really hoping that they'd make a joint award to both of us, and I still think they made a mistake by not doing that. But they nominated ICANN and ICANN won. So immediately I and a few others said, OK, then we are going to invite at least one of the survivors of Hiroshima. Setsuko Thurlow, who had become a very dear friend of mine, turned out she'd even visited Greenham. But she was 13 years old when her school in Hiroshima was completely destroyed by the Hiroshima bomb. She was only one of two or three girls that managed to get out. And in her case, she was encouraged to get out by hearing a man's voice saying, can you see the light? Can you see the chink of light? Crawl towards the light. Crawl towards the light. I can help you out. And she could hear others of her friends crying and screaming with pain. And when she came out, it ended up, I think, two or three of them only. And then appallingly, before anyone else could get out, the fire took hold and... She talked about that. She talked about that in the UN. We had also speakers from the Aboriginal community, from the Western Shoshone and other communities, the Kazakh communities, all the people who were harmed by nuclear testing. But Setsuko was the last speaker for ICANN, the last speaker for civil society when the treaty was adopted. So she was the speaker we chose to accept the Nobel Peace Prize on our behalf and also one of the young women that we had hired as staff for ICANN in Geneva. And so the two of them, uh, Setsuko and Beatrice, jointly accepted on behalf of all of us. And I got to do the, the torchlight ceremony, the torchlight march, because that was being held for the people of Norway and lots of them came. I mean, loads of banners, but also a huge number of activists had come to Oslo to celebrate the Nobel Peace Prize with us. So there were a huge number of various ceremonial activities around receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. The steering group of ICANN was in the very front row, right adjacent to the king and queen and crown prince and, and, and crown princess of Norway. A, a Nobel committee were on the platform, as were Setsuko and Beatrice. And directly behind us was a whole row of invited key diplomats like Elaine White Gomez of Costa Rica, who was the chair of um, of the negotiations in uh, the UN General Assembly, who, um, an amazing Costa Rican ambassador, and the Austrian and the Irish, and obviously some of the Norwegian. And it was beautiful because Setsuko's speech was completely her own, straight from her heart. It was so powerful. It had me in tears. It was so amazing. And then John Legend played Redemption, which is just, <laughs> I guess she was even thinking about that, you know, Bob Marley too. there at, as part of that, that ceremony. 
And then the early evening, because it gets dark very early, was the torchlight procession because there was then the banquet, the Nobel banquet at seven o'clock. I said that if I had to make a choice between the banquet and the torchlight procession, I would do the torchlight procession. And that was so Viking because we were all wrapped up. It was freezing cold. And platform, there was a local singer who'd actually worked for ICAD. She's a jazz singer, a young black woman from a refugee family, a most amazing jazz singer, who had worked for ICANN for about two years. She was the key person running ICANN in Norway. So she sang and then I came up and I did my kind of speech and then there were speeches from local peace activists and and then the, the march set off and people were saying to me, you need to get into the Grand Hotel before seven o'clock. You have to be in place in the reception before the King and Queen arrive. And I said, OK, OK, I'm actually all dressed as I'm going to be for the banquet. All I have to do is change my shoes. <laughs> you know? so I said, I'm dressed, I'm dressed. And we were at the front with a banner saying, join the ban. And with our flaming torches as well. I mean, oh, it was magnificent. And great fun, great fun. You know, there were a whole big group of Japanese just behind us. So we walked up the main drag to the Grand Hotel. And this is where suddenly Tillman, one of the original founders of ICANN, who had also just really wanted to be there with the activists, he suddenly came up behind me and said, we need to rush now. And he's a tall, strong man. I had my walking stick and he, he, he took me under the arm and he almost sort of ran me up the rest of the way. We got into the hotel in time. We had to prove who we were, that we had rooms in the hotel. I dashed to my room, changed my <laughs> shoes. So I got there in time and we had a bit of time to catch up with some of the diplomats because they were all there. Then we all got called to order and invited into the room where the banquet was going to be held. And we had to look at these table settings. I found the table and the first person to introduce themselves to me was a former prime minister. And I got talking to her and then there was, in fact, I think there were two former prime ministers on either side <laughs> of me, of Norway. And then a young, a much younger man came. And so I, you know, introduced myself and said, and, and, and who are you? He looked at me a bit quizzically and then he said something and it it was just Norwegian. I couldn't make out. I said, I'm really sorry. Can you just say your name again? And he said it again and I thought, I can't ask him again. So I said, ah, so what do you do? And he looked at me really quizzically and he said, I'm a crown prince. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, that's a great question. What do you do? <laughs> and I realised that that's why it didn't sound like a name, because what he was telling me was in Norwegian that he was the crown prince, the cons, oh, whatever. And I was sitting next to him. <laughs> and then I think we were in Oslo for another couple of days. And then we were during that time, we were doing meeting some of the politicians from different parties Oslo in, in winter is amazing. Obviously, there's a lot of snow. They have the Christmas market. They had a big Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel was alternately flashing our ICANN logo amazing. of the broken nuclear missile in the peace symbol. 
It was flashing that up, huge. And it was flashing uh, the Nobel, you know, the head of Alfred Nobel on the, on the medal. And actually a lot of public buildings, a lot of buildings. Wherever we went, we were seeing our ICANN logo. That's amazing. That must have felt exhilarating. It was incredible. After all your work. But there was Where one Where is your Nobel Prize? In my living room. Yeah, does it hang up? The, is it framed? No, well, yeah, the, the, the certificate is framed. The medal is... It, in a little box on my bookcase. So those medals go everywhere because we take them to raise awareness. I take mine into schools, on demonstrations, you know, to connect. Not because it's the Nobel Medal, but because it's a way of saying, if you do what you believe in and you accomplish something that lots of people come together to accomplish, then if you get a Nobel Peace Medal, it's not just yours, It belongs to everybody who did the work that made that change happen. I know you are continuing very actively with that work, but you did tell me that that's one of your last travel stories because that was not long before COVID. So I am going to ask you my last question now. And actually, I feel that you might have already answered it, but I'm going to ask you anyway because it was a wonderful answer that it could have been. My last question is always about music, because I believe that music and travel very much go hand in hand, and music means so much to you. I would like you to name one song that reminds you of a special, memorable time and place of travel. What is that song, and and what is the memory? Now, the John Legend one sounds pretty amazing. That is amazing. (laughs) And, um, oh... I'm going to choose a song that actually a friend of mine called Mal Finch wrote. Mal is famous for the song that she wrote that uh, so many women from the miners' strike sang. We are women, we are strong, we are fighting for our lives. And that's one of the ones that's in my memory and the other one she wrote because I got to know her in fact I was involved with her for a little while was was her Holloway song after she served a few days in Holloway prison and it became my lockdown song and it was the walls you put around us you see and now I've only got my my lockdown words into it because the refrain from the song is um And you can't take away, no, you can't take away, you will never take away my freedom. But in the Holloway song, it's all about the walls being put on the outside, whereas the way that I wrote the words to the lockdown song, it's the walls we've put around us by our choice to keep us safe. And in doing that, We make ourselves free because we're keeping the NHS safe and we're keeping ourselves and those we love alive. The walls we're now enclosed by must not make us lose hope. They're meant for now to keep us safe so the hospitals can cope. I am not alone here. We link the whole world round and we're thanking health and care workers as the governments let us down. So when these times of COVID frighten you, if they fan the flames of hate, 
We will rise in solidarity, change this world before it's too late. For these walls will not divide us. These laws can't kill our spirit. And they can't take away, no, they can't take away. They will never take away our freedom. Though we've let these lockdowns go ahead, don't you threaten or control your power has no authority when it's all you have. Our voices won't be silenced. We're singing round the world. Your militaries are grounded and those prophets empty too. And while you nourish fear and despair, while you arm for nuclear war, we'll spin a wider web for justice, peace and love with rights and laws. For these walls will not divide us. These laws can't kill our spirit And they can't take away No, they can't take away They will never take away Our freedom Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.